0: My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And uh, we're going to move into our time of looking together at God's Word. And I want to ask, just as we do that, how many of you uh, were born in Canada? Hands up if you're born in Canada. Okay. Uh, Hands up if you were born in another country. All right, so a number of people born in another country. How many of you have dual citizenship, more than one passport? That you, A few of you have more than one passport. Okay. So um, my wife and I were both born in Alberta. It might as well be another country on the other side of the Rockies, but they still gave us Canadian passports. But one of the gifts that you have as a person, if you were born in another country or if you've spent an extended period of time in another country, is that you have the ability to then see things in Canadian culture that those of us who were born and grew up in Canada actually can't see. We're just, we're just it's oblivious to us sometimes because we just have become so acclimatized to that. And uh, this is really a, a gift because you can see elements in our culture that we are sometimes blind to and so to have more than one culture that you've lived in or more than one culture that you are attuned to can be an incredible gift in the first century one of the biggest challenges though that was created in the early Christian movement actually came as a result of people having more than one culture that they were trying to incorporate and live together. See that as the message of the life of Jesus began to spread throughout the ancient world, and new people groups embraced this new way of living. Uh, people, some people had a Jewish background in their history, and then some people had a non-Jewish, or uh, it's called a Gentile, background in their history. And so these two groups of people came into life together in God's new family, the church, with a lot of baggage, and they each brought it from their cultures of origin, and they brought very different things into that conversation. See, for the Jewish people, some of the the things that they brought in the luggage with them was they brought centuries of tradition. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof? Right? So that one of that undercurrents in that whole uh, play or musical is about tradition and this sense of um, Jewish people had an understanding for histories of uh, uh, centuries as to what it meant to relate to God through practicing rules, keeping away from certain kinds of foods, worshiping in a certain way, dressing in a certain way, praying in a certain kind of way, and they were familiar with all of that structure and that way of life and then they come into an experience of life together. In the church and they realize hold on a minute not everybody shares all of this centuries of history that we have and the tension that built in the early Christian movement and in early Christian communities in the first century was very very real and some of it actually spills over into the pages of the New Testament Because think about it if you're Jewish and you have this sense of relating to God for centuries in a certain way, and then somebody shows up at a potluck and brings pork, which you are forbidden to eat. Like, this does not go over well with you. And so, this real tension emerged because the Gentiles, the non-Jews, came into their relationship with God with none of that kind of baggage, they ate whatever they wanted, they didn't observe Sabbath in the ways that the Jews did, they didn't pray that the ways that the Jews did, and so naturally, the Jewish person's first impulse is to want to ask these new people, with all of their luggage that they're bringing in, to take a remedial class on Torah law, and at least so they could get it together a little bit and understand what it meant to relate to God. But the Gentiles kept asking pesky questions like, why do I have to be Jewish in order to be a Christian? Isn't some of that stuff that you're bringing cultural baggage that you're carrying into this new life together? Now, the Gentiles, though, they don't get off scot-free on here either because many of them were bringing into the new Christian communities that they were a part of their own baggage. See, they wanted to continue to worship in the ways that they had grown up and understood worshiping. They wanted to keep worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars, making sure that the harvest festivals were observed. Uh, Some of them wanted to continue to practice some of their old pagan ways of living. Old habits die hard for both groups. And so this created some very real tension in the life of the church. And so when you're reading through the Bible, and you're coming across sections in the New Testament, some of it's written to actually help these groups of people navigate what it means to leave behind one way of life and one way, some of the baggage that comes with that, some of the cultural or personal expectations that you bring to the world, and beginning, begin learning a new set of rhythms, a new set of expectations, of customs, and orienting principles of life together in Christ. It's like you grew up in one culture, and then you moved, you crossed boundaries, you had to change in your passport and learn a whole new way of relating. And this is the uh, real genesis of the book that we've been studying together this fall, the book of Colossians. And so I'd invite you on your devices or in your Bibles to turn there, and the Apostle Paul's writing to a, a group of Christians, a Christian community that's made up of both Gentiles and people who are Jewish, trying to help them learn and understand what life means together in God's new family. And he's laying out for them a new set of rules and principles that are going to govern life together. What does it mean to participate fully in the work that Christ has done? And he argues there's like a new operating system, a new set of rules, a new set of relationships that are going to come into play. And so the question that he's trying to answer is, which is greater, laws that give us some structure or this sense of freedom uh, of to do whatever we want now? And Paul actually answers that in Colossians and says neither. There's actually a new set that's greater Than either of those two ways of thinking. So look with me at Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I'll be reading in the New Living Translation. You can follow along. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits. In the the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of this earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in Christ's glory. So one of the first things that we see already operational here in this text is that we all take our cues from somewhere something is always informing the way that we look at the world the way in which we operate our lives what we think how we act something is is always um, the operating system is always working in that and we're taking our cues from it and oftentimes this is very unconscious but when we start to explore this we come up against the first question of four questions that we're going to wrestle with today in this text in colossians chapter 3 and the first question is this what is your ultimate orienting reality what's that operating system where's it drawing data from see for those with the jewish background their ultimate orienting reality they thought was the law Rules are going to keep me safe. There's a framework that I can make sense of the world. My ultimate operating on orienting reality, if I'm grown up in a Jewish culture, is going to be the past. I'm going to think that way and draw from tradition. For Gentiles, it was much more a sense of personal individual liberty. Well, if I'm free in Christ, I can do what I want. Who cares? So long as I'm not hurting anyone else, doesn't matter, does it? But the text argues that really... Our ultimate orienting reality as Christians is neither of those things. For those who have chosen to follow the way of Jesus, it's like you've gotten a new passport. You have a new set of principles and rules that govern your interactions. You're no longer a citizen of your home and native land. You're a citizen of heaven because of the saving work of Jesus. And that's why this text says, because of that, we fix our eyes on the realities of heaven. We're already trying to work and live out the values and the vision of the kingdom of heaven day by day by day. Because we all have an ultimate orienting reality. If it's the past for us, sometimes we get stuck in the past. And our ultimate orienting reality can become the hurt's and the habits that we've brought with us into new life in Jesus. They can become so overwhelming for some of us that they define us. For some people, their ultimate orienting reality is the present. They say, well, I don't know what the future holds, so today is all that I have. So I'm going to eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow, who knows? But for Christians, our ultimate orienting reality is always always the future. We are to set our minds, our affections, our hearts on things that are above, not on the things of this world, and to let the values and the visions of my citizenship in heaven inform my thinking and my actions here in the present day. Commentator uh, Sue Williams says it this way, the new life to be fully revealed on that last day when Christ is revealed in glory to the whole world is to let itself be seen in advance, in the present time, in Christian community and behavior. See, what I am going to be one day ought to inform who I am and what I do today. And this is the mysterious interplay between the kingdom of God that is already present and yet is not fully here in fullness yet, the already and the not yet. And so for people who identify as Christians, they would be asking questions like, well, how how is my view of heaven and what the values and vision of God's kingdom, how is that informing my financial decisions? How much of the values of the kingdom of God are impacting my parenting decisions how much of the ethics of the kingdom of God impact the way I use my cell phone because this isn't just oh yeah set your mind on things above whatever that sort of airy-fairy futuristic type of thinking this is very real very present practical stuff because one of the challenges and um, and you guys love it when I say this to you don't hear what I'm not saying right So what I'm not saying is this is not about just fixing our minds on heaven so that we don't care about what goes on in the world right now. Have you ever heard the phrase, oh, that person is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? Have you heard that phrase before? Yeah, so what what someone is saying when they use that as an insult is that person is so fixed on the future, on heaven, and all that stuff, they're actually no good to people around them right now, because they're just, they can't live in the present reality. They're detached from it. That's not what this is about. This has echoes of Matthew chapter 6, when the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? And one of the things Jesus says to them in what we've come to call the Lord's Prayer is, He says, May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, uh, author and theologian John Ortberg writes, What we're really praying when we pray that is, we're saying, God, would you make up there come down here? I want to see the values and the vision and the life of the kingdom of God reflected right here, right now, in my life, in my world, in our world. So how are you and I letting the values of heaven inform our decisions now? That's what it means when the text says to fix your eyes on heaven. Think about things in heaven. Set your sight, set your affections on heaven, It means to try and capture or understand more clearly the values of heaven and try and say, yes, Lord, I want those in my life, in your world, right here, right now, wherever God has put you. And so the text goes on to talk about how this is going to work itself out. Let's look together at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Colossians 3, 5 says, So put to death, the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things, when your life was still part of this world. But now, now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and its wicked deeds. See, if the values... And the priorities of the kingdom of heaven are infiltrating my life right here and right now. There's going to be some stuff in my life that needs to go to make room for that. And so sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you'll come across a list of, um, of sins. Uh, and some people call these vice lists in the New Testament. Vice is meaning something that's bad or wrong or evil. And a few times when you come across these, it can seem like a rather arbitrary set of rules. Why did God decide he was upset about this particular list of things? We'll come to that in a minute. But one of the things that we should be paying attention to when we see these things is um, why uh, is this particular list of negative behaviors, why is it expected that we as Christians would avoid these things? And so in this short List, there's actually two lists. The first list focuses more on sexual sins, and the second focuses more on anger, intriguingly. So the first thing talks about sexual immorality, referring to sexual intercourse outside of marriage lust, uncontrolled sexual urges, greed, uh, unchecked hunger for. Uh, just like uh, they, that can be manifest in lust for sexuality, greed, an a unchecked desire for a- accumulation and wealth. And that's named here as idolatry, literally worshiping something, putting something at the center of your life other than God. And the list goes on in verse 8, because, and talks about anger, and other things that spill out of our lives. Anger, continuous smoldering hatred, uh, rage when anger breaks out in word or in deed, like physical or verbal abuse. And it's quite the list, actually. And the text says, because of these things, the anger of God is coming. Well, what in the world does that mean? Does it mean that God has arbitrarily decided that there's a few things that he's really upset about? and that he's going to smite those who do them. Well, one of the things that we will want to think carefully about is if these things ran unchecked in the human soul and in your life or in my life and they just continue to build and develop and develop and develop, would those things be healthy things? And the answer to all of those things is no unchecked and unrestrained anger towards other people, unrestrained sense of sexuality, unrestrained sense of gossip or uh, uh, slandering other people, these are not things that lead to human flourishing. And so the presence of these things in our lives actually makes us less human. It dehumanizes us. It corrupts and distorts the image of God that he created in us. And these things lead us further and further and further away from the values and the character and the vision of heaven. And these things warp us. They damage our souls and our humanity. And they make us more crooked. And so God, in his love, has a desire to prevent us from destroying ourselves and the world by those things being unrestrained. And so God in love and in holiness has a desire to transform us so that those things have less and less uh, grip on our lives and we look more and more and more like Jesus. And so the challenge is, or the question that we should ask ourselves is, then how far how fast should that transformation be occurring and how far reaching is that transformation going to go in my lives? And here's something that sometimes happens. We talked about this a few weekends ago, that if the sum total of your religious expression is avoiding negative behaviors, that's not fully developed Christianity. Christians are not simply people who don't do the following things and then fill in the blanks. But yet at the same time, Colossians is saying, we got to get rid of these things in our lives. You used to do those things before you were transformed by Christ's saving work and are being transformed by Christ's saving work. So how does that work? How can we have both been transformed and also are being transformed? Well, here's where our Catholic friends have a gift to give to us as Protestants. You see, since the Reformation, Martin Luther and his buddies separated out in the reading of Romans, justification, a moment in time where Jesus uh, atoned for our sins, and sanctification, the process by which I'm being transformed into the image of Christ. But since the Reformation, we as Protestants have very, made very tight uh, delineation between those two things, but our Catholic brothers and sisters have actually never let those two things go. Those things are wedded together in their theological understanding that the answer to how far reaching the transformation is for our Catholic brothers and sisters, it's touched every part of your life. And how fast is that process? Well, it began at a moment in time and it will continue on until we reach eternity. Both things are mysteriously and co-simultaneously true. And so therefore, God's work in our lives is ongoing. And we have to say to each other, you know, you gotta be patient because God's not finished with me yet. He's still in the work and business of transforming my heart and my life. So let me illustrate this in another way. Um, Sometimes, how many of you have gone into a performance review with a supervisor, and your supervisor says something to you like, you know, Brad, you're doing really well in the following areas. You know, this is really good. But I see so much potential in you for growth in these areas which is good, right? That's, that's in a performance review. You want to kind of know what are those areas that you want to develop and improve in. And people can hear this in different ways, uh, depending on your personality. Sometimes when someone says to you, you have so much potential, you can hear that as, Right now, I'm pretty deficient. <laughs> I'm not knocking it out of the park right now. They think I could be knocking it out of the park and doing an awesome job, but right now, they're kind of saying, mm, not so much. The potential is there, but the growth ceiling is really high. And in some ways, when God looks at you and I, the mysterious and wonderful thing is that because God exists outside of time, God actually can see all of those things and all of our lives God sees our past unregenerated selves God sees our present struggle and God also sees our future transformed and glorified status in eternity And that is why when the scripture says you are God's people holy and righteous, and blameless in Christ, and you think to yourself, I'm not wholly righteous and blameless. I don't know who that text is for, but it ain't for me. Friend, it's for you. God sees you as righteous, and holy, and blameless. God sees that you are still in the process of living up to the reality that He is declaring over your life yet to be true in the future. And there's so much more we could say about this, but one of the things that we need to say then is because God sees that to be true of you and I, God extends a gracious invitation for us to cooperate with God in the transforming work that he is always doing in our lives. And so we have a part to play in that process. That's why the text says, put to death earthly things lurking in you, have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Now is the time to get rid of anger. Don't be greedy. Don't lie to each other. You and I have things we need to do. We have a part to play in this. Transformation into the image of Christ is not a passive process that we sit around praying, say, oh God, would you please transform me? I want to be more Christ-like. God says, I've given you an invitation to get rid of some stuff in your life. Take it out to the dumpster. I don't want it there anymore. Transformation is not a passive process. You and I need to be active and get rid of some of things in our lives. And the image that's used in this scripture is uh, from ancient warfare. See, in, in olden days, if you wanted to take out a city, you didn't have to have the best weaponry. All you needed to do was surround that city So that their supply lines were cut off and no food or fresh weaponry could get in or out. And if you could cut off the supply line, you could defeat and take out that city. See, the supply lines in our lives, the instruction to get rid of things is like saying, you need to cut off the supply lines to known areas of sin in your life. Starve it. Get rid of it. Reduce the flow possible going to those things. If you're prone to uh, drunkenness and alcohol, or you're prone to losing control, smoking cannabis, until you've entered a state of losing control, you need to steer clear the next time somebody says to you, hey, let's go to a party where you know those things will be present. If you're prone to maxing out your credit cards at Christmas time, you need to set a more realistic list. And you need to not tie your ego to the size of the gift underneath that tree. If you know that you're prone to pornography, you need to put a filter on your device and get accountability in your life. Cut off the supply lines of sin. Try and choke it out. You and I have a part to play in this transformation process. But it's not just about avoiding things that are bad. Let's keep reading. We're also to embrace things that God in His graciousness has given to us. Let's read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, which says this, put on your new nature. So we're not just getting rid of baggage from the past. We're actually embracing new things. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator And become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you were a Jew or if you were a Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters. And He lives in all of us. Since, therefore, God chose you to be the holy people that He loves You must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, and so you also must forgive others. See, the text has a vice list, but there's also a virtue list to be embraced. There are things that should characterize in increasing ways The lives of those who participate in new life in Christ. And there's a couple important things to highlight here. We are to clothe ourselves with mercy, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with forgiveness. And you might say to yourself, Brad, that is impossible. I have toddlers, (laughs) or I have teenagers. Or young adults in my house? How in the world am I supposed to clothe myself with kindness, patience, and forgiveness? And you think, well, I need those stuff. I want those things, but how do I get that? Isn't, does this sound a little bit like just a new set of um, legalism? Like, I got to have this. You should do this. You need to do that. I think it's important to acknowledge that in order to clothe ourselves in these things, we cannot simply just wake up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to try really, 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 really hard in my own strength and human effort and power through my patience today. I know myself, and I know some of you, you're not good enough to get through 24 hours without blowing it in some way. I'll never be strong enough to cut off the supply line of sin and be so filled with mercy and kindness and grace and compassion and patience on my own strength if I'm left to my own initiative to do this. And that's where we're reminded again of the gracious and ongoing way that God gives us His Spirit to indwell and live in us. Because friends, these things are only possible in an ongoing way by the indwelling empowerment and the presence of God's Spirit. In another place in the New Testament, these things are called the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it's another way of saying when the Spirit of God is taking root and residence in my life, is growing and giving, uh, I'm giving increasing parts of my life over to the work of God's Spirit and God is working and alive and active in my heart, these things will just be natural fruit that grow in our lives the values and vision and life in the kingdom of god will increasingly ooze out of us as we take the posture of being learning and responsive obedient apprentices to the work of the spirit but see here's the thing about apprentices apprentices are still learning They are not master craftspeople yet. And so that means that you and I, as we apprentice, as we put into practice some of these things, these are not only characteristics, but they're things that we need to practice. And if we need to practice them, it means that we haven't perfected them, so we're going to get them wrong. We're not going to always be filled to overflowing with all of these characteristics. That's why it's a practice. We got to keep working at it. And so when we fall short in these areas, this is why the text leaves us with a real clear instruction about forgiveness and demonstrating graciousness to people around us and to ourselves because when we fall short, that means there's going to be some grievances that pop up. And in Colossians chapter 3, it says, make allowance for each other's faults and or by forgiving anyone who offends you. And there's two really good reasons to forgive people who offend you. The first really good reason, this comes from uh, N.T. Wright in one of his books. The first reason that is a really Healthy practice to forgive those who have grievances against you or who have wounded you in some way is that if you're a person who has known the joy and the release of forgiveness being offered to you, to refuse to share that with another person robs them of that joy that you yourself know and have experienced. And then the second reason why uh, it's inappropriate to continue to hold grudges is it's highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive another person when Jesus has already forgiven them. Because if Jesus says, you know, I know everything about them, I can look at their life and still declare, yes, I I have forgiven you. But yet you and I think we can sit in a place and say, "Mm, I know God's forgiven you, but I'm not gonna do that. Friends, you and I are gonna mess up but when we do, we are to offer each other the taste of forgiveness that we have experienced in Christ. That's one of the challenging works that we have to do together as Christian community because all of us come into this place from different backgrounds, different histories. All of us are different places of development in our journey. Some of you are sitting here and saying, I don't know if I believe any of this stuff. Others of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. And so we're going to in discussions with each other, as we rub up against each other, in, in uh, making decisions, as trying to figure out the best way forward in our life together, we are going to create moments where offense has a possibility to take root in your life. And in that moment, the word here is, it's a word to a collective group, choose to forgive. Forgive those who have grievances against you you because again remember verse 12 God has chosen you to be the holy people that he loves see when you and I were still dead in our transgressions and sins when we were still far away from God saying to I hate you I don't want anything to do with you I don't want you in my life I'm not even sure you exist God still said I love you And I love you enough that I will send my son Jesus to earth to demonstrate that love for you. And through the work of Jesus, God calls us to himself and invites us into his family. And he's poured out the love of God into our hearts. And I love where the text goes next. We'll finish with verse 14 to 17. Above all then, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message of Christ in all of its richness fill your lives Teach, counsel each other with all of the wisdom that God gives. Sing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. See, our life together as a community is really centered on grateful worship. Worship is simply, it's not about music, it's not about songs, it's simply a response that we as humans have to God when we see and acknowledge God's good work in the world and in our lives. And really the center of Christian living is... Grateful worship. In North America, we have this idea that the center of Christian living is kind of a vertical transaction between Jesus and I. It's very private, don't talk to me about it. It's very interior, it's very individualistic. But this text is is addressed to a group of community of people working out life together in the mess of human relationships. And so it's trying to answer the question. How can we grow in our life together? How do you let the message of Christ fill your life? Well, you need to open yourself up to teaching, wise counsel. That implies people will be around you, giving that wise input into your life. And then when we worship in song, which is listed right here in the text, One of the things that 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 does for us in a beautiful and powerful way is it, it just gives words and music to the expression of our heart. That's what the Psalms are in the Old Testament, prayers, and they were very often put to music. And sometimes I feel like, God, I don't even know what I want to pray and say to you. And suddenly someone will sing a song and I'll be like, yes, that is exactly what I would have prayed if I could have put that lyric together and that kind of music to it. That's awesome. I just, I'll make that my prayer. So many times, that's what worship becomes for us. And it's why we give such a a wide berth to it here at at Jericho, because these are communal activities, letting others help and support and assist us in the journey. Because sometimes we we don't even have the strength to pray in faith. And then somebody sings a worship song from the stage, and we're like, all right, I'm weeping now. (laughs) I'm kneeling now. My hands are raised now in some way, because it's just the Spirit of God is moving and doing that. That's why I love about being a part of a place like Jericho, because we're committed, friends, to each other's growth and development. And this is not about church attendance and people checking up. Are you coming? Are you not coming? This is about life together as a community. Just month after month, weaving the fabric of our lives together so that as we open ourselves up to teaching and wise counsel and gratitude and declaring the goodness of God to ourselves, reminding ourselves and declaring it to the world as well, we are shaped and transformed in increasing measure to the character of Christ. And it's like love And gratitude and peace just kind of run then in this little circle that reinforce each other. Love, the text says, binds all these things together. Where love exists, where forgiveness exists, it's going to create a sense of peace and unity A sense of moving together and ability to forgive each other. Not just an interior calm, but peace in community. And then when we have that and experience that together, it's going to say, oh Lord, I'm so grateful that I live life together with other people who love me, who love you, and who are willing to forgive me when I mess up. And so that's like a little self-reinforcing thing that happens. And the natural response when we think about God's goodness then to us is just to be filled with thanksgiving. And so I'm going to invite um, Ruth Ellen and the team to come, and they're going to lead us in songs of worship. And as we respond to God in worship in song, I want you to think about maybe choosing one of those three entry points as your pathway in to worship. Maybe for you, it's God's love, and you just want to spend time just saying, God, can you remind me yet again today Of your love for me, your love for the church, your love for all around me in the world. Maybe you need to practice peace, and maybe as uh, we move into a time of worship and respond, God will bring to your mind an offense between you and someone else, and you think, oh, I, I need to just make that right, Maybe you need to send them an email. Maybe you need to set up a time to meet with them for coffee. Maybe you need to just say, hey, can I just pull you aside? Let's pray together. I just need to confess to you that I don't feel like I am I'm walking away of peace with you. Just let God speak to you about that. Maybe for you, you come into this place today and you just say, I am so grateful for what God continues to do in my life and in my family, and in the world. And you just want to say, I just need to overflow with gratitude, songs of gratitude and thanksgiving to God and so the worship team is here to lead us in that response and our practice here at jericho is also to have people available uh, at the back for you for prayer maybe there's something that you uh, have come today that's heavy on your heart and you need somebody to lay hands on you and pray for you maybe it's a sickness that you need to be healed from maybe it's an, uh, just something you say "My heart is so full of gratitude i just need someone to join me in saying thanks to god and so look for our prayer team constance is there at the back katie's there at the back i'll be there at the back as well we would love to join you in that journey and know here that at jericho part of that when you experience the love and the thanksgiving and gratitude we're embodied human beings and so sometimes we just respond to god's goodness and love with our bodies you might want to dance you might want to raise your hands you might be led to kneel all of that is okay and we invite you to respond to god so choose one of those entry points And as the team leads us, just ask God to open your heart. Just stand, sit as we sing these three songs. Come for prayer as you are able.